Welcome to the Olefins Weekly Wrap-Up, a podcast by IHS Market. Today is Friday, November 20th. I'm Erin Roberts, and this week we'll be bringing you something a little different. In our October special topic episode, we talked to Steve Lewandowski, Vice President of Global Olefins. However, the conversation between Steve and Carlo didn't end after they answered all the questions. Here's that conversation. If we start working from home, you know, three three days a week, uh, and other companies do something similar one or two days a week, that's a lot of, you know, transport fuel demand that goes away. If we yeah. don't start traveling again and we do more of these teleconferences that we've been doing, you know, since COVID started, that's a lot of transport fuel demand that just goes away and then the world doesn't need whatever it is 120 million barrels a day of refining capacity maybe it only needs 100 right yeah. so no i think they have the dilemma like we have is you know you you got to do a price forecast that's kind of at equilibrium because if you go low then people shut down so then you need to bring the price up because those assets shut down so I mean, I, I know they want to shut places down because they know a bunch of new capacity is coming. They just don't know how to make, they got to make their numbers say that at least for a couple of quarters. I think we're at least doing that in chemicals. We have pretty weak margins, mm-hmm. um, but maybe not weak enough. But no, we, just- we, we have the luxury knowing we have continued demand growth where they don't have that luxury. Cause that, like you said, it's sticky. And if they continue to add refining capacity, that we don't need and we're underrunning everywhere else, something's going to have to shut down. Yeah. No. And the other thing too, Steve, that I, and you know, just to keep the theme going in case we wanted to do post-credit themes or whatever, um, you know, the whole NGL thing is, is fascinating to me because, you know, one of the, one of my former colleagues, you know, they indicated, yes, it's, you know, people basically choked wells to, you know, to get the production down, but now, you know, they're expecting, the supply, uh, the supply cuts to really accelerate because now the declines are going to take hold. All right. And in, in 2021. And so that's where, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens to the, to the oil markets there, because I don't, you know, you know, maybe declines maybe meaning production declines, production as, declines as yeah. a depletion. Now that's the way I understood it is okay. Maybe they're running harder now, but that just means depletion is going to happen quicker. And if they're not drilling, then you can't replace what you've lost by all this depletion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens there. But NGL, I, I have to tell you, I was looking at the data from the EIA on the NGL production, and it really surprised me. Definitely on the weekly stats for propane, it really surprised me that it was only 100,000 barrels a day less on a you know 2.4 million barrel a day uh, production base, right? That's. Yeah, I don't know how, how does that happen. I don't. I agree with you. I don't know. Oh, uh, my sense is that even though you're choking back wells, um, you're still probably getting uh, some NGL production there. Maybe I. I didn't work on the production side of the business. Um, you know, as you know, I worked on the commercial side of the uh, of the produce, production company. But uh, that's my sense. Uh, the other thing too. I mean, you. You know, Marcellus Wells, I'm, I'm sure they're probably still drilling there in the Marcellus. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's an issue of gasier oil wells versus drier oil wells. And maybe they're continuing to chase the gasier ones. Yeah, that's, you know, the, 
that's an interesting point because uh, uh, in the Permian, depending on where you were in the Permian, because you had the Midland Basin and then you had the Delaware Basin, yeah. you know, the, the 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 more west you went into the Delaware Basin, the more liquids uh, you had there and the more more you got into the midland basin it was a little bit gassier so you know there's a there there are those dynamics at play as well yeah um the other thing too is that um you know now you're getting this consolidation in the upstream business right so you had you know chevron that bought noble i mean of course you have the oxy and a darko deal uh, mm-hmm. but you also have uh pioneer that bought parsley uh, i mean so now you're getting all these you know these oil companies that are becoming bigger right and so then it just becomes a capital allocation play right where am i going to allocate capital where i make the most money and you know certain plays just aren't going to get the capital and it's just all going to be about you know which plays give you the best eurs which is estimated ultimate ultimate recovery and you know how fast can those eurs be accelerated to be able to provide the most cash flow. It, 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 I guess it says a lot when someone buys someone like that, that they feel the older operator was doing a poor job and that they can lower costs and improve recoveries to make their money back, right? That's the only reason you buy an asset. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that or, you know, exposure to, uh, to a play that the operator didn't, nec- the, the purchaser didn't really, have access to or to core up or you know add to the play that they that the uh, purchaser wanted to uh, but, but it's all about lowering your cost right you, you you don't do it because you just want to have more stuff you do it right. because you think you can you can make more money than the other guy paying the price he's willing Correct. to sell that and you, you know you can do better than that i think the dynamic that we didn't talk about uh on the podcast we was the uh China and their speed to market, right? Because I think that's actually a game changer for the chemicals business, right? Does it smooth out the chemical cycle because China can build so rapidly, Mm. you know, as opposed to a five-year lead time for a cracker and derivatives, you know, theirs is, you know, closer to like 30 months, right? Two and a half years, right? Cut it in half. So I think- Yeah, I'm working closely with William on that because the private equity- they can't get funding anymore because there's no margins mm. and the state owned, they just don't move as fast as the private. So, I mean, there really is a question of will, will the government say we're going to control all these projects and the pace slows back down to what we would think, maybe not to a U.S. equivalent or a European equivalent, but maybe not as aggressive as they, they were. I mean, time will tell, but you, we, yeah, what you said is true. We know they can do it because they did it. Yeah. And just will they be motivated to continue to do that or or not? Well, and the other thing too that I I didn't talk to you about this, but you know Aaron and I were on a call with, and you know they're starting to focus more on the petrochemical side and you know how to progress the uh, environmental agenda with the petrochemical side because one of the things that I've noticed and I've been talking to my friends in, in the upstream side is that you know unless they have some sort of renewable hook, right? Unless they have some sort of renewable hook um, on the upstream side, you know, it's really tough to kind of attract those investors um, on on uh, on the upstream side. But, you know, I think that's going to be uh, a key theme, not maybe, maybe not next year, but 
definitely within the next few years that, you know, how, how sustainable are, you know, environmentally sustainable are the operations and, you know, do producers start um, differentiating themselves by, you know, really stewarding their social license to operate, you know, from an environmental standpoint. And I think that's, that's something to keep a lookout also. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're watching ESG closely as a group and this is all part of that. Right. So it's, you know, I, in, in the work that Robin's doing, I can't remember what it's called sustainability or whatever the new study is called on recycle. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're looking at carbon footprints in, the relative carbon footprint to me of petrochemicals versus power generation, for instance, is just enormous. They're way bigger than chemicals. Mm -hmm. yep. So, you know, where do you get the biggest bang for the buck for a point source? It's probably a power plant versus a pet cam plant, but well, I don't know. We'll have yeah. to. It's funny you said that. Cause I think that was the same. I don't know, Aaron, do you remember? I, I probably parroted that exact same uh thought processes yeah. you know the bang for the buck <laughs> yeah, i mean it's it's you're right it's something that we need to watch a lot closer i think i think for plastics the thing that's more important is collecting and containing trash and then figuring out the best way to do something with it but you know what i keep telling people is the leading choice taking mixed plastic and making synthetic oil via pyrolysis you know, 30% of the plastic that comes in gets burnt to make CO2 for the energy to drive the pyrolysis reaction. <laughs> so you actually have a lower carbon footprint using oil. If you landfill better, you have a lower carbon footprint. Yeah. And wow. all the other solutions so far aren't really paying out. One I'm watching really close is now um, syngas and CO2 to ethanol and ethanol to ethylene. Mm. So I'm asking RJ a lot of questions because Lumis is pushing a technology and others are. And, you know, Mark Morgan, I don't know if you ever talked to Mark Morgan, but he's he's pretty interesting because I sent him a note and saying, what, what's with this? Because chemical plants are small and recycle plants are small. But he said CO2 to, to ethylene. Um, there's power generation plants that are generating 6 million tons a year of CO2. In 6 million tons of CO2, I calculate it's like 1.5 million tons of carbon. Mm -hmm. And if you then add some hydrogen, that's like 2 million tons of ethylene a year from just one, one site. Wow. That's a lot of ethylene. Yeah, it's, yeah. Exactly. It's expensive and, it, you know, the technology's still got a ways to go but it's it could put a challenge on oil-based feedstocks for sure yeah exactly there especially, are disruptors there are disruptors yeah especially when refining's looking at oil as the uh, savior uh, or not oil uh looking at petrochemicals as the savior to the yeah, exactly <laughs> it even makes it worse for them right exactly but which is problematic because if oil then goes even lower if it goes to 40 because that's the break-even point LNG will never work into China or anywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. So then gas production goes down and then we lose more NGLs. Yep. It's, it's, yeah, it's a vicious cycle. Let's put it that way, right? So. Yep. Yep. Let us know what you think of this format. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. And give us a like or leave a review if you enjoy it. And if you have questions or want us to cover something more specific, 
You can send an email to me at erin.roberts at ihsmarket.com. Until next time.